This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. My name's Chris, I'm the pastor here, and we're thrilled that you are with us today. We're in the middle of a series in the book of Acts. Acts is the story of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the church. And so we're working our way through story by story and exploring how what happened then is not just descriptive of our history, but is prescriptive for our present and our future. And what we believe is every story we read in Acts has something to teach us about what it means to embrace Jesus, what it means to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, and what it means to take our place in the church. This morning we'll be in Acts chapter 9, and we're going to talk about how we respond to new life and and really how others respond to our experience of new life in Jesus. So if you have a Bible, we'll get there in just a moment. But I, I think we all have this hope that when we say yes to Jesus, everyone around us that sees it, everyone that we tell about it, will be as excited as we are that they will embrace this work of Christ in us, they will celebrate it, and even more than that, that they will receive the same thing that we have received. And that there are segments of the church that will tell you, hey, if you'll say yes to Jesus, you will be healthy and you will be wealthy and everyone will love you all of the time. And that can be an attractive thing to get you in the door. Unfortunately, eventually life is going to smack you right in the face. And you're going to recognize that when I said yes to Jesus, some people celebrated, some were excited, uh, but some ignored me, some made fun of me, some rejected me, some didn't believe me, some threatened me. There are all kinds of responses. And so what we're going to see this morning is how do we handle the different responses that we get when we say yes to Jesus? Now, the the book of Acts, one of the things I love about it is it is the story of the early church, which means it's very much the story of our life today as well. And so Acts has some incredibly high supernatural moments where the Holy Spirit is poured out, where people are healed and they're saved and they're delivered. These dramatic conversion encounters like we looked at in Saul's life a couple weeks ago. Next week, we're in a passage in Acts where the dead are being raised, the sick are being healed. And then sandwiched in between those are moments of everyday Christian life. And that's kind of where we are this morning. This passage today is is just very practical, very feet on the ground, very much when you follow Jesus, these are some of the things that you can expect. And as a a new believer, it's going to set your framework for what you're going to experience. As maybe a mature believer, it's going to remind you of how you can help disciple younger believers who are coming after you. But it's a, a longer passage of scripture, so we'll just kind of read it as we work our way through it. We're going to start in Acts chapter 9, verse 19. This morning it says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. So just a a little context for us, where we're picking up the story today, Saul has uh, moved from being a persecutor of the church to a proclaimer of the gospel. He is one who actively sought to destroy Christians and to destroy this new Jesus movement. He had tormented them in Jerusalem. He was there when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was killed, giving approval to his death. He went door to door in Jerusalem, dragging out men and women who were Christians and throwing them in prison. And then he went to Damascus to continue his reign of terror. On the road to Damascus, he encounters Jesus. He is blinded by Jesus and confronted with the reality of who he is. Saul is saved. 
He becomes a follower of Jesus. God sends a man named Ananias to him to disciple him so that he can receive his sight, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and set on the path that he's to walk. And where we find Saul this morning is at the beginning of this new life in Christ. And what we see is Saul doesn't walk into new life. He runs into new life. He doesn't sit around to wait and see if this is going to stick or not. He doesn't uh, kind of wait to see if others are going to welcome him or accept him. He says yes to Jesus. He's healed. He's saved. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he begins to run back into the spaces where he once was an opponent and is now a proponent of the gospel. And he begins to tell people about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And Saul's story is a reminder to us today that the church always needs the passion of new believers. We always need an inflow of people who are saying yes to Jesus. And when they say yes to Jesus, our responsibility as Christians is not to tell them to calm down, to sit down, or to be quiet. But our job is to celebrate the work of Christ within them, to believe that their conversion is real, eternal, and effective and to help them run into this new life that they've discovered. We are never to be a church full of grumpy people that when new Christians show up, we kind of look at them like, well, we'll see if this sticks or not. We are to be people actively welcoming, actively encouraging, actively celebrating the things that God has done. This year at Christian Chapel, we're sharing chapel praise stories of the good things that God is doing in our community. And so each week, we're taking time to celebrate stories of salvation, stories of God's healing, stories of God's provision, stories of God's guidance and his deliverance. This morning's chapel praise story fits perfectly within Acts chapter 9 because it's a story of unexpected salvation. It's a story very similar to what happens to the Apostle Paul, where Jesus shows up, confronts someone who not only wasn't looking for him, but was actively opposed to him. Srikanth, many of you might have met, he's one of our ORU students, has an incredible story of growing up in a home where not only were they not Christians, but they were actively opposed to Christianity of doing all he could to discredit the gospel among his friends, among people in his setting, and then being confronted by Jesus. Um, Last spring over at Oral Roberts University, they they shot a short little video of Srikanth telling his story that they shared with the student body. I saw it when they, they shared it and knew immediately we want to share that at some point at Christian Chapel. And as we've worked our way through the book of Acts, it, it seems to fit perfectly today. So instead of me telling you what new life looks like, if you'll turn your attention to the screen behind me here, we'll just share Srikant's story with you. Hey, everyone. My name is Srikant Srinivasan. It amazes my mind to even think about what Christ can do with a person who hated him mocked at Christians, insulted them, and now burning with a passion to live for Christ. I remember an incident where the movie The Passion of Christ was being played in my street, and everyone around were watching and crying as Jesus being crucified on that cross. And I stood among them and I said, guys, this is a fake story, do not believe. I come from a different faith. I was deeply engrossed in my religion of my own house, and I took such a joy in insulting and mocking Christians. But God sent a tenant into our house, and basically Christians are not allowed in my house. And this woman moved into our apartment, and she slowly started sharing the gospel to me. 
Every time I passed the second floor, she would offer me a cup of chai and she would present the gospel in such a way. And I was amazed because she was 20 years older than me. I insulted her, disrespected her, but she never gave up on sharing the love of Christ. I gave her a challenge saying, you're talking too much about your God. Let's have a conversation after September 9th in the year 2013. Then I'll prove that your religion is a lie. But this woman, she was like, Srikant, my God will touch you even before September 9th. Little did she know that she was right when she said that her God will touch me even before September 9th. On September 8th, I was arranging everything for the next day festival with my family, and I was so exhausted, I thought I'll just take a short nap. September 8th at 8.30 p.m., I was by myself in the room, and I heard a voice, and the voice was so crystal clear. Just three words, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, and Jesus loves you. It's repeating over and over again. It's like a song that is stuck in my head and I couldn't get over it. And all of a sudden, the very picture that I mocked at, Christ being crucified on that cross, is right in front of my eyes. And I don't know what's happening to me on that night. I'm on my knees, crying like a baby, confessing, saying, God, if you are real, I'm gonna follow you for the rest of my life and I'm in awe and I'm on my knees for three days, locked myself in the room and I couldn't come out. The more I look on that cross, I'm deeply in awe for the love that he had for me. Once upon a time, I said it's a fake story, but today I take this story to the ends of the earth. From a persecutor to a proclaimer, all it took was one encounter. My dear friends, one encounter can change your life, and one fully surrendered life can change the world. I love Srikanth's story because it's a reminder of it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what you think about Jesus. He's going to show up in personal and powerful ways. He's going to confront you and challenge you in ways that draw you to him. Now, when that happens, what, what happened to Srikanth is what happened to Saul. Many of us, we have our own stories of I was running from Jesus or I was disinterested or I really didn't even know or care. But someday, in some way, God encountered me. My life was transformed. Transformed, I said yes to him and I started running into new life. And when we run into that new life, we want everybody to celebrate with us. Right? We want the response to what Jesus has done in us to be the same your response just was to Shrikant's. We want people to clap for us, right? We want people to yell, we want people to celebrate, we want them to be with us. And yet what we find is when we say yes to Jesus, some will celebrate, some will applaud, some will be right there with us wanting to run and tell our stories to others. But there will be many others when we say yes to Jesus and we turn from darkness to light who are completely just caught off guard by our new way of life. And so while we might expect one thing, what you'll often find is a variety of responses to the new life that you've found in Jesus Christ. This is what we see happening with Saul, and I think Saul's example can kind of help prepare us for maybe some of the responses we'll get as we start to run in and share the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So we'll keep reading the story. Acts chapter 9, verse 21. It says, All those who heard him 
were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Saul's conversion was astonishing to the point that it was disorienting to those who heard it both to those who were his former teammates in oppressing the church, as well as to those who were the former recipients of his persecution, the believers in the church. Everyone who heard Saul's story was initially confused by it. How could this man go from trying to kill everyone who confesses Jesus is Lord to become the one who walks in the synagogues to argue that Jesus is the Messiah? And we don't know what Saul's hope might have been for the responses he would have received, but we can be pretty confident that he was hoping people would hear the message and would receive Jesus as he had. And yet the the response of many is that they were baffled and they were astonished by it. The same thing will, will happen in your life, will happen in my life. When we say yes to Jesus and he pulls us out of a life of darkness, pulls us out of a life of opposition to him, if he pulls us out of a life of spiritual apathy, a life of secret sin, and he begins to set us free and fill us with passion and overflow into our speech and our actions, while we long for others to accept it, some are just going to be confused by it. They're going to look at you and think that doesn't make sense. That's not who you are. That's not how you talk. That's not the conversation that we have with each other. And as you have those encounters, it can be easy for them to become discouraging. For you to start to believe that, well, maybe this isn't really real in my life. For the enemy to come and use the doubts of others to sow doubt into your own heart about the work of Christ. But I would encourage you this morning, any time you find that others are disoriented by the new life of Christ in you, it's proof of just how deeply and fully that life has worked in you. It's proof that you are different, that you are no longer the same, and you don't have to be that person again. So the fact that others are disoriented by who you are and what Jesus has done is actually just one more reason to celebrate. It's one more reason to praise God for what he's done and what he's doing in your life. Tonight, men, if, if you come to that men's event at Christian Chapel, you are going to hear a disorienting story about the salvation work of Jesus. Blaine Bartell's coming to speak. I I won't steal any of his thunder. All I'll tell you is it is a wild story of God's unending grace extended to someone in the middle of dark and deep depravity. And yet when you hear Blaine's story, he'll tell you who he was and he'll tell you what he did. And there'll be a moment where you think, I don't know that you can actually go from that to what you are today. And yet when we actually encounter the grace and mercy of Jesus... It's always disorienting because it flies in the face of everything we know. It flies in the face of everything that has happened. So, so man, I'd encourage you, do everything you can. Dads, if you've got a son, I'd say probably 15 years old would be a minimum. Don't bring your 8-year-old. He'll be traumatized. But 15, 16, 17, bring him with you tonight. Right? Bring him with you and then have that conversation on the way home of just the disorienting grace of Jesus and what it looks like and what it means. And, and you are going to walk away encouraged from that. But for all of us this morning in Acts chapter 9, what we're remembering is we're sprinting into new life. Our eyes are focused on Jesus. We have forgot the past. We've put away old things. But sometimes other people, when they look at us, 
They still remember the old things. And they still remember the old ways. And it's confusing and it's astonishing and it's baffling. But don't let their confusion kill your passion. You just keep running that path that Jesus has laid out for you. Now for for Saul, this was somewhat expected that not everybody is going to understand immediately what happened to him and who he is. But he also finds that there are those who move from just being disoriented by his new life to actually being threatened by it. So if you skip down to verse, Acts 9, verse 23, it says, After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. The, the transformation in, Jesus, or in Saul's life through Jesus was so thorough and complete that it was viewed as a threat by those who used to be Saul's friends and co-workers. And so on the, the surface, that is hard to understand because we think, why would a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, how could that be perceived as threatening to anyone? But in Saul's situation, the threat is that Saul is now going around telling everyone Jesus is the Messiah and not just sharing his testimony, but proving from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And so for his former religious compatriots, his religious leaders, those who served with him, what they see is Saul coming in and undermining the foundation of their life. They see Saul coming in and pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment, which means most of their duties and responsibilities are no longer going to be necessary or needed. And so the gospel that Saul is preaching of salvation by grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone is a threat to these men in positions of religion. Power. And so they move from being disoriented, confused, or baffled by his speech to thinking, we have to take care of this problem before it gets worse. Now, for, for many of us, when we say yes to Jesus, whether you recognize it or not, your new life in Christ is a threat to your old life in darkness. And because your new life is a threat, others who still love the darkness, others who still embrace the sin, now view you as a threat to the way of life they love. Now, we're, we are fortunate to live in a, a nation and in a place where the threat of death and imprisonment for saying yes to Jesus are not really a, a pressing reality for us. And yet, even as we read through Acts, we always want to remember that just because that's not our current reality, it doesn't mean brothers and sisters in Christ around the world today still aren't facing the threat of when they say yes to Jesus, there's a real threat to their life and their freedom. And so as we work through, we thank God that's not our experience, but we're also praying for those who still face it. And yet, even from a position of relative safety this morning, we want to remember when we say yes to Jesus— our life becomes a threat to the enemy. And our new way of life becomes a threat to those who still love our old way of life. And so many of you have experienced when you said yes to Jesus, the threats came. You had the boyfriend or the girlfriend that said, hey, if that's where you're going to go, if that's how you're going to live, if that's what you're going to do, if those are the new standards you want to have our relationship abide by, I'm out of here. Right, some of you, you've, you've had the boss or the coworkers who said, hey, that's great that you have that new faith and everything, but this is still the way we do business. And this is still the industry that we're in. And if you can't get on board with that, you've got to get out of here. 
Some of you, you've said yes to Jesus and you have this, this dream of all of your circle of friends saying yes to him and finding new life. And instead what you found is you've been exiled out of that group because no one wants to be around you anymore. Some of you, sadly, you've said yes to Jesus and you have an unbelieving husband or wife who said, if that's what you're going to do, I'm out of here. And they've walked away from you. And what we learn in the story of Acts is when we say yes to Jesus, we will experience difficulty because of it. It's not a popular message, but it's the true message of Jesus. It's the true message of the Holy Spirit. It's the true message of the early church. When we move from darkness to light, darkness doesn't give up easily. It's what Jesus told us in John chapter 10, verse 10, that he's come, the enemy is here to steal and kill and destroy, but he has come that we would have life and life to the full. And when you experience that life to the full, the enemy who was determined to steal and kill and destroy does not lay down his mission, but he keeps coming at you. And so when you're threatened, when others begin to exile you, when others begin to give you ultimatums, how do you respond? Well, in Acts chapter 9, we see a response from Saul. And it's during the night. His friends have heard about the threat. They get him. They put him in a basket. They lower him through a hole in the wall, and he flees to safety. And so it's a, a reminder to us today, when you are being threatened by others because of your new life in Christ, unless God specifically calls you to stay and endure it, it's okay for you to walk away and into new life. So if, if you're in a spot where you've said yes to Jesus and now your, your work experience has become an absolute nightmare, unless God has told you you are to stay there and he will be sufficient, and if he's told you, he will. But it's also possible that those circumstances are intended to point you in a new direction. I mean, in one of the, the most intimate relationships, a relationship between a husband and wife, the Apostle Paul will later write in 1 Corinthians that if there's a believer who's married to an unbeliever and the unbelieving spouse leaves, the believing spouse is to let them go. And so what we see scripturally is this idea of we know we'll endure difficulty, we know we may suffer persecution, but if the Lord provides a way out for us, it's okay to take it. And so if the boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up, just let them walk away. If the friend group exiles you, just let them go their own way. If the job ends, just trust that God is going to provide a new one for you. And so it's, it's very much this understanding that, yes, there are times that we are called to stop, to stand, and to stay, even in the first face of intense persecution. We'll see that later in Paul's life himself. But for this morning, what we're understanding is when you are being threatened because of your new life in Christ, if the Lord directs or provides a way out, it's okay for you to take it. It doesn't mean that you have somehow shrunk away from the faith. It doesn't mean that you have denied Jesus. It just means God has a path for new life, and he needs you to keep walking in that direction. And so as Saul flees Damascus, he heads towards Jerusalem, which is, is still somewhat, even though all the believers have spread out of Jerusalem, it's still somewhat the seat of Christianity because it's where the leaders, the original disciples, the apostles reside. And so Saul, to this point, that the responses he has endured are somewhat expected. The, the Jews didn't believe him. The, the really fervent people wanted to persecute him. 
And now he flees to Jerusalem, most likely with the hope in his heart of, well, at least there I'm going to find a new group of believers who will accept me and welcome me in. You keep reading his story in Acts chapter 9, verse 26, and we see that's not exactly what happens. It says, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. And so Saul goes back, and he gets a very cool reception. Right? I mean, at, at Christian Chapel, we, we want to provide a welcoming environment. Right, we have Pastor Mike oversees our, our chapel host ministry, and they do a good job, and, and they're, they're holding the door open for you, and you come in on Sunday, and they're shaking your hand, and they're helping you know where the kids go and what's happening, and, and that, that maybe is the, the reception that Saul hoped for, but instead, it's more like Saul showed up to church on Sunday morning, and they were holding the doors to make sure he couldn't get in. Like, we don't, we don't want you, we, don't, we know who you are, and you are not welcome here. Now, there are times, and what Saul's story teaches us is there are times when Christians get it wrong. The church in Jerusalem should have welcomed Saul in, right? Peter, the one who denied Jesus, should have been on the edge of town saying, hey, I heard about your conversion. I'm so excited as somebody who's done some nonsense in his life. I'm glad somebody else is here with me now, right? That should have, but instead, what do the disciples do? They hold back, they withdraw, they don't believe that Saul is really a disciple. Now before we, before we kill them too much for their response, it is important to remember the setting. The last time they had encountered Saul, he had murdered their friend Stephen, and he had started going door to door and pulling out their friends, their family, their loved ones, and throwing them in jail because they're following Jesus. And then their last sight of him was when he's leaving on the road to Damascus to take his reign of terror into a new portion and continue to do the same things. And so when they hear, hey, Saul has come back and he's a Christian and he would like to meet with the leaders of the church, it's understandable that they kind of held him at an arm's length and thought, well, let's just wait and see. Because in that gap of time, the church has went underground to a certain extent in Jerusalem. Most of their friends and family have moved out of Jerusalem and into the surrounding areas because it was so dangerous to be a Christian in Jerusalem. So when Saul comes back, there's a reasonable fear of, is he coming back pretending to be a disciple just so he can infiltrate the church at its highest levels and destroy it from the inside? Now, we, we know because we've read the story of Acts that that's not what's happening. We know that Saul's conversion was complete and was authentic, but the believers do not know that, and so they hold him at an arm's length. And, and so our application of that today is to understand that when you say yes to Jesus, the church is supposed to be a place where we welcome you in and we celebrate the authentic work of Christ in your life. And yet, some of us can tell our own stories of, I said yes to Jesus, I ran into new life, and I was rejected by other Christians. I told them what Jesus had done for me, and they looked at me and said, we'll see about that. I told them about the radical transformation he brought, and they thought, I've heard this story before. I told them how I'd left behind the life of addiction and darkness, and they said, give it some time, and let's see if it sticks. And in those spaces, if Christians are cool to receive us, it can feel as if we're being rejected by Jesus himself. And in that space, the enemy comes in. He begins to whisper to you of, see, you don't belong here. They don't want you here. 
they don't believe. And the reason they don't believe is because the work of Jesus in your life is not real. You are still the addict. You are still the one who did these things. You are still the one who causes that pain. You're fooling yourself to think a new life is possible. And yet what we see in Saul's life is an encouragement to us, even today, that we can never let the mistakes of a few believers keep us from our place in the body of Christ. Some Christians will get it wrong some of the time, but all Christians will not get it wrong all of the time. And and it also requires a little bit of humility on our side. If Jesus has saved you out of a life of darkness, out of a life of sin, out of a life where you have caused pain to other people, and you come and tell them the story of, let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life, you shouldn't be surprised if their response is, that's great, but let's see. I had a conversation with a a member of Christian Chapel who's a, a drug and alcohol rehabilitation counselor. And so her, for a period of her professional career, her entire life was helping addicts not be addicts anymore. And she said one of the most frustrating things to a recovering addict is when they go to their friends and family and tell them, I'm clean, I'm sober, I'm living a new life, and their friends and family say, we've heard this story before, we'll believe it when we see it. And she said, in her experience, it takes 18 months to three years of consistency before friends and family of an addict believe that they are actually living a sober and clean life. And so what that means for us today is when we say yes to Jesus, we are perfectly, finally, completely in that moment transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And yet, there will be spaces where others will be slow to believe us. And typically, the more we hurt someone while we were living in sin, the slower they will be to believe us now that we're living in light. But that doesn't mean the work of Christ is not sufficient. It doesn't mean you are not a fully, fully a son or daughter of God. It simply means there are some consequences to your previous way of life. And that you might have sowed those oats for generations or on end, and it might take more than a minute for them to believe there's a totally new way of life possible. But as you keep loving Jesus, as you keep following him, even those who are slow to welcome you will eventually be turned and welcome you in. Now, now thankfully, in that space, even when some Christians get it wrong, Jesus still sends others who help us find our place in the body. This is exactly what happens for Saul. Verse 27, it says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. So at the the lowest point of Saul's life, God sends help. When the Christians said, we're not sure we want you here, God sends Barnabas. And Barnabas shows up as the presence of God in the life of Saul. Barnabas is willing to take his reputation and put it on the line for Saul. He's willing to take his credibility and give it to Saul with the other leaders of the church. He testifies to what he has witnessed in Saul's life, to his effective ministry and the work of Christ on his behalf. And so what it reminds us of this morning is that all of us always need a Barnabas in our life. 
We always need someone who's willing to, to go the extra mile for us, somebody who's willing to open doors that we can't open ourselves. And if we had time, we could, we could tell our own stories of the men and women that God has used like a Barnabas for us, who came alongside and they were willing to leverage their reputation to allow us entrance into a group of friendships. They were willing to use their resources to create opportunities for us to identify our calling and to follow the path that God is laying out for us. This morning, you'll, you'll have an opportunity to sign up for home groups at Christian Chapel. Home groups are, are, are a couple things. First of all, they're the best way for you to get to know others at Christian Chapel. If you feel like I'm new and I don't have relationships, go sign up for a home group. You cannot go to someone's house, eat a meal with them, and not come away knowing them. It's the most effective way to enter into community at Christian Chapel. But home groups, maybe you've never thought of it, home groups are also a place where others are using their time, they're using their energy, they're using their resources to leverage opportunities for you to take your place in community. And so our home group leaders, they've embraced the ministry of Barnabas. They are, they are the door openers in our community. They are the relationship makers in our community. They are the connectors between brothers and sisters in our community. They're the ones who are willing to say, hey, I know you don't know them, but you know me. And so trust me, you can talk to them. Trust me, you can be with them. Trust me, you can build a relationship with them. And so for us, we're, we're celebrating that ministry. We're embracing it. We're participating in it. And if you're here this morning and you're in a spot where you're thinking, what I really want is I really want God to send someone to me to create those spaces like Barnabas did for Saul, your prayer has been answered in abundance today. So you can literally just go and walk table to table. And they've got different names, but in their heart, they're all Barnabas. And they're all there to create spaces and places for you to find your identity in community and to begin to live in the fullness of Christ that he has for us. And we, we all long for God to send people like Barnabas to us. But that can't be where we stop today because the story of Acts chapter 9 is not just about how others respond to us when we experience new life. It's also about how we respond to others when they're running into new life. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, you have been the recipient of some Barnabas-style ministry, and because you're the recipient, you now carry responsibility. And your responsibility is to be the help that God is sending to someone else. Your responsibility is to leverage your time, your energy, your resources, your opportunities, your gifts, and your abilities to invite others into the fullness of life in Jesus. If you're walking with Jesus this morning and you're living in connection with other believers, you have something that the world is dying to experience. But in some ways, you do serve as the gatekeeper. The Holy Spirit is drawing people in to salvation. He is doing the work of conversion in their lives, and then he's propelling them into communities of faith. And in that space, we each carry the individual responsibility to be Barnabas for someone else to create time, to create opportunities, to use the things God has given us, to give them our credibility, to loan them our reputation, and to create space for them to find their place. And if you go and, and read in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, you'll see that as these things happen, a spirit of peace fell over the church. The Lord continued to add to their number, and they continued to experience the fullness of Christ. And the same thing happens for us today. When we run into new life, 
you'll have all kinds of responses to it. But whether people are disoriented by it or threatened by it, whether Christians are slow to respond or you find a whole group of Barnabases ready to welcome you in, our job is to keep walking that path of new life that Jesus has laid out for us and to continually do everything we can to make it as easy as possible for other believers to walk that path with us. If you'll stand with me, I want to lead us in a final prayer. The band's going to come back. We're going to sing a a celebratory song this morning, reminding us of the, the power of Jesus to bring complete and total transformation to us. So Lord, we come to you today. We're thankful for our experience of new life. We're thankful for just the very practical nature of the scriptures. That they're not only invitations to experience the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, and the miraculous hand of God, but they are invitations to do the messy work of living in community together. Lord, we're thankful that the scriptures teach us that life won't always be easy, but you are always leading and guiding. So Lord, I pray if there are those with us today who've never said yes to you, will today be the day that they surrender their lives to you? Well, today, like Srikanth's story earlier, may today be the day that they have a personal and powerful, a transformational encounter with Jesus, where they hear you calling them by name and leading them into new life. Lord, for those of us who've been privileged to have that experience, will you help us to press forward on the path that you're laying before us? May we not be discouraged or stopped by the opposition of the enemy, or by the difficulties of community. But may we continue to trust and believe that you have called us onto a path of full life surrender to you and an embrace of community with other believers. Jesus, that's what you've created. That's what you've made possible. That's what we want to experience today. So we lay down our objections. We lay down our excuses. We lay down our past hurt and our future fear. And we commit to walk in the fullness of life that you are laying out for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.